Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Today is Sunday, it is I believe the 6th, sorry, the 6th, it's the 22nd of the 5th. I am either weeks behind or weeks ahead, Michael. How have you been? I've been fine. How are you? I've been pretty good. So we want to touch on, for the last time, uh, some of the goings-on in uh, University Maternity Hospital down in Limerick and some of the claims that have been, about, have been made about it. Uh, we want to touch on the uh, dissolution of the Biden administration's disinformation board. Well, more exactly, it's uh, pausing, Michael. Uh, but really, just want to talk about that as a, as a springboard onto the idea of formal and informal power. So I wasn't terribly happy to hear this board was removed. I actually think it was a... Uh, it should be there because formal power is viewable, but we'll get into that. And then this is also coming up in America. A statement has been released denying Nancy Pelosi, one of the most prominent Democrats in the country, uh, the sacrament of communion because of the current push that the Democrats are making on abortion. There's been a very strong reaction to that. And it seems like a lot of people, Michael, have forgotten about what the concept of separation of church and state actually means. Oh, I'm not just in America, but yeah, we can say America for the time being. So I want to touch on that as well and just explain what that concept actually is rather than what people think it is, which seems to be that religion should not get involved in any sense with the public sphere and you should have no right to bring forth your religious views. Yeah. Okay, so on universal. University Maternity Hospital Limerick. Some of you may have already seen this. I, I wrote an article on uh, in Gripped on it. And what had happened is a very interesting group called Together for Safety, which are a group, they're a pro-choice activist group. The exclusion zone uh, bill that's currently being considered in the Oireachtas, at least the one that doesn't come from government, was written by Together for Safety. So they are very, very well linked in with politicians. They're down there in Limerick. To be honest, the group seems to be really just three middle-aged women. Not that there's anything wrong with being three middle-aged women, Michael. Not a thing. Do you have to also say that they're all white? Oh, that's a worry. Mm. Together for Safety have kind of popped up a, a fair bit in stuff I've done. Because, Michael, they just keep saying things. And then we keep looking into them. And then we keep finding out they're not true. Not true? That's your, that's strong stuff there, Gary. If you remember, Michael, that there was a group saying that pro-life activists had been... Um, in some case, pro-life activists. In other cases, just religious vigils that were actually unrelated to abortion. Or at least not really only concerned with abortion. And they were saying that these people were harassing and intimidating staff and pregnant women outside hospitals. And that was repeated for several years uh, by many people, including several politicians, until I thought to ask every maternity hospital in the country if they've ever had an official complaint of that nature. Which is not a bit OCD, but there you go. Well, Michael, sometimes you just have to do it. It took me several months to pull together because some of the hospitals just would not answer me. But I found, Michael, if you call someone every day for a month at random times and using different numbers so they can't figure out it's you, eventually... They'll give you the information just to get you to go away. Yeah, I can believe that. And so I think in the end, I got uh, 16 of the 19 maternity hospitals. And I think a 17th had already given a quote to another newspaper. And not a single one of them had ever had a complaint of that nature, a formal complaint made. I think I worked out that that was something like 90% of the total maternity capacity in the state. So we wrote an article basically saying this claim appears to be have absolutely no merit. Then shortly thereafter, Together for Safety claimed that... Um, pro-life activists down in Limerick had tried to force their way into a family planning clinic. But Michael, they made a fatal error. They gave the location of that clinic, which meant I was able to go and see which clinic it was and then call the clinic and kind of go, well, did this ever happen? And no, no, it didn't. 
ever happen. So again, that got the kibosh put in it. And I don't think they've ever said it again. And then shortly after that, they said that pro-life activists outside Limerick Hospital had been leaked the uh, times and dates at which abortions were being carried out and were now specifically holding protests outside the hospital at those dates and times so they could harass and intimidate those women directly. Yes. Which is quite a serious claim. Yeah. So we had... um, This is the claim that Ellen Coyne was looking up when I was able to show that she had said that one of the pro-life activists down in Limerick had made claims that she had never cla- uh, that she had never said. A statement which was described, Michael, under privilege, uh, Ronan Mullen of the Shannon said that Coyne had invented the remarks and that if the shoe was on the other foot and this was a journalist with pro-life sympathies misrepresenting a situation such as this, he or she would be back making coffee and photographing, photocopying for a considerable period of time before being allowed to return to the newsroom. I don't agree with that. In most countries, if you were found to have, you know, invented remarks, Michael, they'd sack you. Yeah, but Gary, on the other hand, there was a degree of cheating that took place. I mean, Ellen Coyne didn't know that there was actually a, a full transcript of the conversation available to the other person on the other side of the conversation. And that's really cheating. I mean, it is. You know, you, you say things and you say that people have done things on the assumption that you're the only person who has evidence backing that up. Yeah. And then it turns out someone recorded you and then gave that recording to other people. And disseminated it. That's what they did. They disseminated, Gary. They cheated and then they disseminated. That's just not fair. So all of this happened in about February. Yeah. And when it happened, I reached out to Limerick Hospital and I tried to get information on them about it. I love the way I love the way you say you reached out to Limerick Hospital. I can imagine you extending a friendly hand saying, Limerick Hospital, I want to help you. I'm reaching out to you. You didn't. You said Limerick Hospital, I want to know something. And Limerick Hospital responded inside their little heads anyway. Yes, but I don't want to tell you that. Yes, but you see, I'm very polite and pleasant to people I deal with, Michael. You're polite and pleasant to everybody, Gary. Everybody says it. I just don't stop. Yeah, that's what also everybody says. So it took me uh, three months to get the information, during which I just didn't stop. And basically cut through their press team, eventually got them to pick up. I... At one point, I had an auto-dialer set up. So every, I think it was two and a half minutes, I would call their press line again automatically. Because you get a sense (laughs) after a while, Michael, that someone is dodging you. God, you're annoying. Oh, God. I I was about to say I would hate to be on the other end of this, but I have been on the other end of this, and you are so annoying. Eventually, I got the feeling that they were deliberately not taking my calls, but they weren't going to block me or do anything like that. So I was like, okay, if you're going to ignore my phone calls on the presumption you can see my number, I'll just ring constantly, and you'll never have a moment of peace. And eventually, it will be so mentally draining You'll pick up the fucking phone. <laughs> and that, that eventually did happen. So, you know, I stand fully on that. I at least can turn my phone off. They can't. No, that's a problem with being a public body. Yeah. So then I went through their FOI unit. Their FOI unit uh, refused to give me the information on the basis that uh, it would lead to the death of women. No, hold on. No, that they didn't say that. Ah, they were not far from it, Michael. What did they actually say? If you give me a second, I'll pull it up because I just finished writing a uh, internal uh, FOI guide for gripped on so the other reporters like how you use foi and i have this in it as a case study including the emails on uh what will happen if you have to go like all the way through it yeah no they told me that they couldn't release the um they couldn't release the records as releasing the records would have a serious chance of endangering life or safety oh well life or safety yeah that's Pretty close. Yeah, and then I sent a three-page response back, which basically said I'm appealing, and here is 
all of the reasons why I'm appealing. And then they denied that appeal, uh, but found that they had been incorrect to say it would kill women. And then I had to go through the Office of Information Commissioner. And then they got back and basically said, give them all of the files. So I got the files. And what I did was this. I asked them for the dates on which abortions were carried out, Michael, because I knew what dates the vigils had been on. And if the vigils had been getting leaked information about when the abortions were, mm-hmm. then the vigils would match up perfectly. Yes. So what I found was was two things. There had been two dates in 2022 where the vigils had taken place uh, on the same day as the abortion. No, sorry, I, I was saying pro-life activists before and now I'm saying vigils, so I just explained that. What had been called protests designed to intimidate and harass women when I looked into it was a vigil of usually three to four women who would walk around, not the hospital, uh, not inside the hospital, but the public road outside the hospital quietly praying uh, the rosary. And they didn't have signs. They didn't try and engage people. They didn't stand outside the entrance uh, waiting for people. They basically did a lap, a couple of laps, and then they would leave. And didn't we establish, when we discussed this before, that this is something which actually preceded the repeal? Yes, it, it preceded repeal by a large, uh, by a large amount of time. And when I talked to them, they said that, well, it's not a pro-life vigil particularly it's a vigil where we pray for the health and well-being of anyone in the hospital who is um who is ill or alone and they said they've been doing this for years long before abortion had came in now they did say when uh when the eighth was removed they added to their prayers um any of the unborn who in there i think they said will be thrown away but it was not you know a purely pro-life thing sure and from seeing it it's you know it's Michael, it's a couple of old women who are very well-meaning and basically do this once a week and then leave. I was able to cross-check the dates of the vigil and the um, and the thing, and I found in 2022 there had been two dates on which they had they had matched up. But what I found was this. The vigil in September of last year started meeting on a Wednesday. And from that time, they've met every Wednesday, once a week, outside that hospital. Okay. In all of the time in 2021, since they changed over, so they changed in September of... Um, 2021. There was not a single day on which an abortion was carried out on the same day. In January of 2022, the hospital moved the day on which it carries out abortions to Wednesday. To Wednesday. So they moved the day. It's not that the ladies moved their day to Wednesday. The hospital moved the day to Wednesday. Yeah. So they they carry out abortions on Wednesday and one other day. Now, I didn't give out the other day because it was unnecessary. And also, I got the sense from talking to Limerick Hospital that they just didn't want the day out there. So I basically said, look, it's not necessary for the story. I'm not going to give it out. And so then in January, they were doing it on these two days. And there were two periods over the first quarter of 2022 in which there was an abortion on a Wednesday. And that's where it matched up. So far from these people being leaked information and showing up specifically at dates and times, it was totally coincidental. And the hospital had had changed its procedure. Uh huh. But there is an interesting question that this gives rise to, Michael. Which is? How did Together for Safety know that there was crossover on those two days? Unless somebody had leaked confidential information to them? Unless someone had leaked exactly the type of information that they said was being leaked to this group. But to them. But to them. But it's okay, I suppose, if it's to them, because... I'm because I'm struggling here, Gary. You have to help me. Well, they're 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 morally righteous, Michael. Well, yeah, yeah, okay. Still, that seems I don't know if that works. In a, does it work in a court of law? Morally righteous? 
GD, GDPR, does GDPR have a section asterisk, asterisk, footnote for the morally righteous? No, I don't think so. It, this would be considered a, a quite serious breach of um, privacy. I mean, I had to you know, go to bat to get these records the official way. Now, I could have tried to get them the unofficial way. And I might have been able to get them. But I thought, in this matter, considering the way it's done, I will go through this by the book. That just seemed to be the appropriate way to do it. Yeah. So, yeah, information may have been leaked. Refresh my memory. Is it the case that prominent politicians, even at the level of national leaders, made comments on the basis that this group had been behaving this way because they'd been leaked information and that this was a very bad thing? Um, just, did that not happen? And have we heard an apology from said people? Well, I've reached out to them, Michael, because of course I have. Uh, wouldn't you know it? I haven't heard back from any of them. Ivana Bacic didn't get back. Uh, Senator Paul Gavin didn't get back. And it was interesting with Gavin because he didn't just say there's a report. He said that this report clearly shows that information from within the hospital is being shared with these protesters. Now, let's put aside the issue of abortion for a second. Yes. A sitting parliamentarian declaring that staff in a hospital are leaking what would be considered sensitive private medical information for any political purpose is an incredibly serious charge. Yep. And Paul Gavin just said it. Now, I haven't seen the report that Together for Safety put together and that Ivana Batrick and Paul Gavin uh, say that they saw. So I don't know. Maybe it was very persuasively written. But, Michael, this is the third major claim from Together for Safety that I have just found to be without merit and to fall apart at the most cursory fact-checking. Three claims that you've basically been able to explode. And of course, Together for Safety remain very politically influential because no one really cares that we repeatedly show that they've made false claims. Now, I've been very careful not to say that they have lied about these things, Michael. Yes. Because lying requires them to know that they're wrong and do it anyway. Um, Other people have been less, shall we say, generous on that front. But I've made sure not to repeat that myself because enough people already threaten me with lawsuits. Yeah, and you don't have the advantage of parliamentary privilege. So you have to be a little bit more circumspect. And let's face it, I'm perfectly willing to believe that they're just saying things because they don't know them. It's unclear what they know. Oh, that's very true, Gary. Little epistemology joke there for the fun for the fun lovers out there. But anyway, go on. Yeah, I think there is an interesting question of what they knew and, and when they knew it. Now, I did, Michael, go to Together for Safety before I published this article uh, on the private number of one of their members that I managed to source, much to her previous displeasure. <laughs> they haven't gotten back to me. Now, I'm not surprised they haven't gotten back to me. Obviously, they don't like Gript. They don't like me. They're not going to get back. But it was important to give them a chance to explain it. Yeah, but it's only because they don't know you, Gary. They should take the time to get to know you. You can't just not like somebody on the basis of something they write on an online media thing. You have to get to know you. Go out for a drink. Have some dinner. Get to know Gary. I'm sure you'd like him. Yes, then they can go from disliking me for just general reasons to specific reasons. I'm not saying you won't find him enormously annoying, but that's not to say you couldn't possibly like him. As I said, I am very polite to people. Very polite. I'm told that makes it much worse. Much, much worse. So we reported on this. Nothing has happened. Nothing will happen. The group will continue to have influence. And the only reason I stuck with it so long, Michael... Because I knew when I published it, no one else was going to pick it up. It wouldn't matter to the politicians. They were just going to ignore it. So I stuck with it purely for this reason. I just think there should be a record of everything these people have done that's questionable so that you know, anyone who wants to look into them can find this information about them. And maybe at some later point, that'll become relevant. Well, I think there's also a value to this, which is beyond the simple value of trying to get 
things uh, into the public record which are true rather than false. That, that there's a long term. You and I know, I mean, not just us, everybody knows, that one of the besetting problems or sins of the modern world in media is that somebody writes an article, then somebody comments on an article which gets into another article, and then somebody else comments and it gets onto a, a website of a TV station or a radio station. They're now there, and then somebody else in six months' time wants to do an article about something else, and they, they, they do a Google, they do an archive search, and they find these stories. And on, and those stories then become part of another story, and then they go, and suddenly, over the space, you, you, get a, you get this snowballing effect where dozens, if not hundreds of articles, all basically repeat, repeat the same set of inverted commas facts. And it now becomes a fact because it looks like there are all these stories, all these various sources. They're in English papers, they're in Irish papers, they're in papers in the, the Times of India, God knows what. And unless somebody at some stage close to the story actually comes out and, says, and, and corrects this, or at least casts serious doubt over it, that process, no, I'm not saying that process won't, won't happen anyway, but there is at least the hope that you can nip that process in the bud. Because, and I know this from work, bits and pieces I've done, there's stuff going back years and trying to convince people that actually it's all based on one story, which in the first place was wrong, is almost impossible because it becomes embedded. And it, it feels like there's a mass of confirmation about it. But actually, when you, when you follow it back and follow it back and follow it, you discover it goes back to once, once unsupported, unconfirmed report in one article, which somebody managed to get out and nobody bothered to, to contest it. So there is a value to this, at least in theory. There's a value to it. We can hope. Yeah, I think it, there is a bit of personal satisfaction in being able to look into something and go, well, that's not right. And if you really, really think it's right, I have this lovely coloured graph, which I actually didn't include in the article, which shows when everything happened. And you can just say, you're wrong. I love a good graph. When you go into the Dáil uh, record and just in general conversations in media, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil TDs have been supportive of this group together for safety. And I've got to wonder, Michael, if they've ever bothered to pull up the social media accounts of these people. Some of which are very easy to find, some of which are less easy to find. But all of them, I assure you, can be found. Yeah. And just had a look at what they're saying about Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. Because, Michael, some of these people have not been terribly complimentary towards Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, as Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael TDs speak well of them and congratulate them for their fine work. Gary, I can only imagine that you're, the question you're asking is some form of rhetorical question. As in, did, did have they looked at their social? God Almighty, do you remember? Do you remember the the, the lecture manifesto for the National Women's National Women's Council of Ireland, which they sent around to all the political parties, which many Fianna Fáil TDs and Fine Gael TDs signed up to. That involved simply reading two or three pages of text, which they were sent around to sign up to, not going in and doing some kind of archival search of media of on, of online social media. And if, if any of them had even bothered to read that, there's no way in the world they would have signed up to it. And we know this because when uh, I got on the phone and made a couple of telephone calls and I said, have you read the thing you've signed? And they came back and said, oh, God. And as quickly as they could, they took their names off of it. Then uh, if they're not willing to actually read that, and the reason they signed it was because it just came through and they were told by the press office from somewhere, oh, please sign this. If they're not going to read something that comes through like that, the likelihood of them actually going to the effort of checking up social media archives seems to me to be vanishingly small. I mean, we've had Stephen Donnelly come out and twice on the doll record 
sorry, one of them may have been in the Shannon South Oireachtas record, commend together for safety for their work on exclusion zones legislation. But then you look at their media, their social media, and you're like, these people hate you. <laughs> and it's just, you are climbing after these people. And I saw, you kind of saw it with the National Maternity Hospital as well. I, saw, I think my favourite quote was someone saying that a friend of theirs had realised after this that as a, a socialist, feminist, queer person, they could no longer vote for Finnefall. <laughs> yeah. That person didn't vote for Finnefall to begin with. That person didn't eat a pound of stilton at night, go to bed, and even dream about voting for Finnefall. Yeah, it's like anyone who says, well, if you don't do this, we won't vote for you. And they've forgotten to ask the pertinent question of, well, have you ever voted for me before this? Would you have ever considered voting for me? No. And yet, Gary, it seems to a lot of us out there that there's a large part of the push from Fianna Fáil at the operations, at least, and not a insignificant bits of Fine Gael, to pursue, desperately pursue this vote. Because it's so underserved. I mean, in fairness, I mean, there's a massive gap in the market at the moment. It's only being served by the Labour Party, the Social Democrats, Sinn Féin, the Greens, uh, people before profit, the Socialist Party, the Independent Socialists. So there is a huge gap there. So why not go for it? And let's face it, these are people who have traditionally had fundamentally positive attitudes towards, say, Fianna Fáil and haven't regarded them as something that they would have found on the bottom of their shoe and scrape off before they go into someone's house. No, I mean, they they regard them with warm and generous con- consideration. Actually, I saw one of the uh, one of the people behind Together for Safety. Actually, the, the funny thing is this person is a sociologist and a psychotherapist called Karen Sugru. Uh-huh. And she, uh, David Quinn, had put up a tweet about um, how Catholic healthcare and Hippocratic healthcare are better than secular uh, replacement because he basically, he was talking about euthanasia and the, you know, the willingness to kill patients. And that's its whole other thing. But Sugru responded and said that, um, I won't give the exact, uh, I won't give the exact details of the tweet, but you can find it pretty easily. And I won't give it because I'm pretty sure David Quinn is going to sue her. And it basically said that Quinn was, was I believe the phrase was utterly comfortable with the the raping and abuse, and it kind of went on for a while of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it kind of read like the response, Michael, as someone who's under a bit of stress, you know, maybe just lashing out a bit. Maybe, I don't know, it seemed to me to be fall fairly within the parameters of the rhetorical modes a lot of people seem to be using these days. Yeah, they have, they've all got a bit worked up about the maternity hospital. Yeah, it, I, I, Quinn, I, I think has been pointed out for a little while and maybe that's why they went for him. Quinn, shall we say, a little bit bald-headed on this one because Quinn is saying it has in a sense at times devolved into something of a civil war between the people behind the repeal shield. Ellen Coyne has left Twitter. She just had an article up that was titled Repeal Veterans Have Broken Their Own Rules Their Own Rules in Maternity Hospital Row. It's like the Independent is making her write articles as a punishment now. Yeah, it's, a, it's the independent version of punishment beatings, isn't it? I mean, Coyne is through and through on their side. She said a couple of things that they didn't like about the maternity hospital. They were incredibly quick to just start abusing her. And uh, yeah, it just, well, pop itself, I suppose. But the thing about that tweet about, about David Quinn, um, David Quinn, regardless of what you think about him, is infuriatingly pleasant as a person. But 
he's not just pleasant in the sense that socially, he's just genuinely moderate, middle of the road, pleasant. The fact that he believes things now that are just beyond the pale socially, but were until the day before yesterday regarded as pretty mainstream ideas, doesn't seem to be part of the consideration. He is relentlessly, genuinely nice. He's not doing it because he thinks it's what you should do. He's just really nice. And it infuriates people. It's infuriated people for years. I wrote a piece a, long, a few years ago called Why You're All Right Thinking People Hate David Quinn. And my theory, such as it was, was that Quinn articulated, depending on what issue, what particular uh, subject of the culture wars you were talking about, opinions that were held by somewhere between 40 and 60 or 70 percent of the population of Ireland. And very often these were opinions that might have been held by your granny or your brother or your mother or your next door neighbor or your best mate in school or your, your colleague at work. And because it's not really possible to go around hating all of these people, because that's going to kind of fuck up your life in a fairly major way, the handiest thing is to take all of that and just focus it on the, the slightly unremarkable figure of David Quinn, because he is the face of, shall we say, more traditional Catholic conservative uh, Ireland and hate on David because you don't want to hate your granny. You don't want to hate your next door neighbor. So it's just the easiest thing is just to hate David Quinn. It's interesting because they've gone after Quinn. They've gone after Ellen Coyne, who's on their side. And then they've gone after uh, Stella O'Malley. Oh, yeah. Who is, again, just a really pleasant person. Also, I would have thought... I don't know Stella O'Malley well. I've had a, a, a one conversation with her, ple- perfectly pleasant. But I have the impression that Stella is a person of the left. Um, I would have, I have the impression that she is, by normal standards, would be considered to be a person of liberal or even progressive tendencies. But on one particular issue, she falls outside of the current orthodoxy. And that's her done for. Yeah, I mean, you have a TD saying she's a deeply controversial figure, underprivileged, of course. And then you have social media uh, people jumping on her because she doesn't agree with them on the trans thing. Or at least on the on children and under-18s transitioning. I'm actually not sure where she stands on the, the broader thing. I've never thought to ask her. But they seem to just be... I don't know. I'm not, I, I wouldn't stretch so far to say it's panicked. But I think there may be just a bit of a uh, wounded animal lashing out element to this on that particular issue there's a rather good article by mike Mick, Mick, is it mick clifford uh in the in the in the examiner there if anybody out there wants to have a look at that that's worth reading because it goes through the uh, the attack on her in the the doll where i think it's fair to say she was pretty egregiously misquoted would you say i think so for for, for those who haven't for those who haven't seen it what happened is uh, stella o'malley was giving a talk at a seminar on, I, I'm not sure what the exact topic was, but it was something related to uh, transition and children, basically, and transgender children. And she was asked something about uh, how people should deal with other people. And she gave a quote that was taken as, um, I think she said something like, there's no need to have empathy. No, I, I think what she said was, there's no you need don't. for you yeah, to yeah. have, you don't have to have empathy. But it was clear from the context and the wider transcript that she was not saying she had no empathy. She was saying she did have empathy for them. But she, you know, you can't force people to have empathy for other people. And it's in the middle of a broader kind of point about this. And they just took that sentence in isolation 
and just said, well, here's Stella O'Malley saying you don't have to have uh, empathy for transgender people. Isn't she horrible? And that she didn't have empathy. And it was a, a, a number of people seemed to think that this was a fairly bad example of an abuse of the of the privilege which parliamentarians are given to guarantee that they can say what they like uh, in the doll and not be afraid of the consequences. Well, Michael, we can we can only hope that someone made her exact aware of the exact standing orders under which she could make a uh, claim that Barry had acted inappropriately. Yes, we, 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 I don't think we have to hope, Gary, do we? I think we, can, I think we know that somebody, some muckraker, some troublemaker, Gary, did precisely that. However, I see on social media that other people who are suspicious of her are fairly confident that she would not do such a thing because that would expose her. It would expose her to the scrutiny and facts, Gary. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm genuinely amused at the idea that Stella O'Malley is going to be worried about facts coming out in this particular area. So I, I will. I saw those tweets talking about it and how Stella O'Malley had no recourse because if she made a complaint, then it would dig up all this horrible information about Stella O'Malley. And there was sort of an implication that Stella O'Malley supported the torture of children. And it was, it was pretty nasty. Yes. But it, this is social media, but this is a veteran campaigner saying this. So we'll treat it with some, with some respect. I have had to go through that process where you go to the doll and you you bring someone through uh, the process saying that they have misused a privilege, which I don't think many people bother to go to the effort of, but I have. That explanation of how the process works is total horseshit, start to finish. That person has no idea what they're talking about. They're just saying it very loudly and with confidence. You amaze me that this person doesn't know what they're talking about. For, uh, just on the basis of uh, people talking about things they don't know about. This Biden administration misinformation group that was to be created. Now, for those who aren't aware of this and what happened here, the Biden administration announced that it was going to put together a what they called a disinformation board about three weeks ago. And it was going to be part of the Department of Homeland Security. And it was designed to combat disinformation. And it has just been suspended. Now, According to NPR and CNN, it got disbanded because it came under relentless and vicious attacks from right-wing media and Republican lawmakers. Now, their general attack, Michael, was that given the, the First Amendment, the American government has no part to play in determining what is and what is not disinformation. And more than that, putting it in the Department of Homeland Security and allowing people to be appointed to it through political connections is incredibly dangerous and it shouldn't exist. Now, it became a bit of a problem that the person that they uh, put as the head of it, a woman called Nina Jankovic, I think. I, I, I cannot pronounce the I-C-Z, whatever way that's done. Uh, a couple of political views of her own that people dug up through her you know, social media. And there was stuff like that wasn't political, but was kind of cringeworthy, like reworking famous songs to be about political topics. And then recording them as videos for the internet. Oh. And she'd also kind of worked with um, some of the Ukrainians. And anyway, people basically said that this was a hack, that this was a democratic. And they went after her. And now the, the board has been suspended and there has been much rejoicing amongst Republicans. I don't think it's good that this board was gotten rid of them. And it's for this simple reason. Informal power versus formal power. Formal power is shaped, it's understood, and it can be dealt with. So, for instance, when the Republicans take over next, 
They would just stuff their people onto the board. That's how it works. You know what the board is. You know what it does. You know who they're talking to. You know what they're doing. And basically, there is oversight of it. Informal power would be things like people associated with the government talking to tech companies and asking that certain things be demoted or promoted and talking to media and getting the same thing done. Things like that, Michael. And that's been happening for years. That's a little bit like sort of that distinction between hard power and soft power, isn't it? It's that connected cultural power, which isn't formalised and you can't exactly point to it, but you know that people have it. The old Gramsci distinction. Yeah, and there has been there has been this assumption that getting rid of the board is a win. But how? I mean, they're already doing what the board was meant to be doing. All this would have meant was that there's a paper trail and you can see what they're doing. Yeah, it's all out in the open. So, yes, you, so your, your objection is that the problem, well, not objection so much, but your observation is if you keep the formal power out in the open, at least you know where it is. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a defining trait of dictatorships that positions don't actually matter. Not that to imply anything, we're just making a general point about power. Like in a dictatorship, it, like it doesn't matter if you're the president or not, you control the country. And the reason that you do that and you allow other people to take those positions is because it obfuscates what you're doing. It's like in the old days, I don't know if it's still true, maybe it was never true, but it was always believed that, for example, in China, it wasn't necessarily the prime minister or the president who was actually the powerful figure, that the there might have been some older person who previously occupied a position and now was completely in the back, completely in the shadows. and had no no formal position, but actually was still the most powerful person in the regime. And in fact, in a sense, it was it was it, within the Chinese political culture. It was always assumed that you your power was diminished in a sense by being in a formal position, which was publicly recognised. Interesting thing about this is the board itself, when they've talked, has said that we would have had nothing to do with policing speech, and it was basically just a coordinating mechanism between different government agencies. But there is a bit of amusement in the disinformation board was unable to fight against the disinformation aimed at it and had to be dissolved. I mean, it probably indicates they weren't very good at things. Well, the, maybe, or maybe that just wasn't what they were supposed to do. Talk, I don't know, did you see, again, only tangentially, did you see by any chance um, our dear president, our dear leader was on Ryan Tuberty's show, The Late Late Show? I know you're a big fan of The Late Late Show, hardly ever miss it. Michael, I routinely forget that RTE exists as a source of news. <laughs> anyway, he was complaining about the, the concentration in relation to social media and the internet, the concentration, the dangerous concentration of power in one person's hands. And he didn't mention, and Ryan Tuberty, I think, I think said to me, are you referring to Elon Musk? And the Antutron uh, said it didn't matter who he was referring to, but it was fairly obvious that he was, in fact. Or we can at least speculate that it was, in fact, Elon Musk that he was referring to. It just amused me, Gary, you're talking about the notion of power and that he was worried about the concentration of power by one man owning a company which happened to be one of many social uh, media uh, companies on the internet. Not to, not to speak over you, but just a question. This would be the same Higgins is very fond of Fidel Castro, wasn't it? Fidel Castro, um, Chavez, Hugo Chavez, the great Chavez, who he said lifted so many people out of poverty in Venezuela. By the way, have you noticed that Venezuela is now 
the was it the last or the second last in the happiness and non and corruption index and all that kind of stuff whose economy had been destroyed and people and poor people were picking through rubbish dumps in order to find food so successful had this campaign been to lift them out of poverty yeah he didn't seem to be bothered gary about concentrating not just the operation of a social media platform but all of the power in the whole of the state in one hand in one man's hands but you see the thing is there is a suspicion gary that elon musk is not a socialist there's a strong suspicion now how elon musk is fundamentally different to jack dorsey uh when jack dorsey had the majority of the share i don't know or is different to zuckerberg when zuckerberg still had I don't, I don't understand. But apparently it's really dangerous that Elon Musk is going to be able to control Twitter. Or control, if will he, will he control Twitter? Will he be able to? Quite how you control it, I don't know. But that's it's really dangerous anyway. Much more dangerous than, say, putting Hugo Chavez or Fidel Castro or somebody like them in power. It kind of, now, Michael, it sounds like the sort of point someone would make where they weren't actually really concerned about massive amounts of power being centralized they were concerned with massive amounts of power being centralized under the wrong person the wrong kind of person with the kind of who suffered from severe severe doses of wrong think as well and elon musk has displayed serious amounts of wrong think which must concern us all actually mentioned about the the happiness uh, index which finland has continued to come first in i believe for like the fifth or sixth year in a row i think i think it's 10 years I, I could be wrong i think it's the 10 years in a row the, i just i mentioned that because the last time i checked these stats on um how many people in each country have mental health issues finland had the highest amount of mental health issues in the eu and you're talking anxiety disorders Actually, they had less anxiety, I think, than most other countries, but they had far more depression and a massive amount of alcohol and drug use, relatively high, you know, bipolar, schizophrenia kind of thing, and then just a massive amount of others. So they keep coming in as the most happy country, but that's all self-reported. But at the same time, they have the highest level of mental health issues. Yeah, but on the other hand, they're not sober a lot of the time. And if you asked me most of the time when I was drunk, was I happy? I would have said, yeah. Well, I, I mean, there is there is a joke that, you know, a happy fa- a happy fan is a man who realizes it could be worse. <laughs> so I think there is an element of that in it. It's just, it's so dark and there's so much alcohol and there's so much depression. You just have to kind of go, I mean, it could be worse though. I don't know. They seem to be very good at fighting people. We actually have one of the, the last time I checked, we actually had one of the highest rates in the EU. Like we were close to fit. Of uh, happiness. Well, you have to remember there are lots of different happiness indicators. The particular one we're looking at was reported in Bloomberg, where we come in 13th, which is still pretty good because there's a lot of countries out there. We're doing quite well. We're still happy. It's like in the top five, it's like Finland, Iceland, Denmark. Denmark, in other in other surveys, I've seen Denmark come out as the happiest. And I remember talking to a Danish sociologist once and asking him, why are people in Denmark so happy? And... His answer, he was not a man who on the face of it was tremendously happy with the world, I would have said. Other than other Danes I've known have actually quite fun people. And he said that Danes felt a responsibility when asked these questions to say they were happy, that there was a very strong social pressure in Denmark to be happy. 
<laughs> but he seemed to be skeptical about whether deep down they actually were. Ha- Remember, this is the country of Soren Kierkegaard. We we rate really highly on mental health problems in Europe. Which do you think is the most common type of mental health disorder in Ireland? Most common type. Now these are from the OECD report, so they 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 these are all you know very broad brackets. Well, I would have said some form of depression. Depression is the most common form of mental illness. No. What? Anxiety disorders. Really? Yeah. Well, anxiety and depression are very often associated. They they can be, and we have a moderate amount of of depression. And not as much alcohol and drug use disorders as you would think. Well, no, I I know we don't, because as you know, I have a passing interest in alcohol and the effects where we come. For example, I know that even though we have higher levels of consumption of alcohol than Sweden. We are in the decile ahead of them and the WHO figures. We come below them in alcohol-related incidents, uh, alcohol-related sickness and incidents requiring hospitalization. I always find these figures quite interesting, and particularly in America, where you've so many people with mental health issues, but you've also so many people taking prescription antidepressants, relaxants the amount of drug use of things like xanax is off the charts and i think there's a really interesting political question there of how do you run a democratic country when massive amounts of your population are chronically indulging in mind-altering chemicals i i would be curious to know and i don't know how you test for this to what extent we're actually not looking at uh, genuine increases, in, say, in levels of depression and anxiety, or we're looking at actually increases in concept creep? Because is it possible that what we're actually seeing is not that people are more depressed, but rather that people have pathologized feeling sad or just feeling at odds with the world or out of sorts to the degree that now that any kind of negative emotion is perceived as being something which requires medical help, rather than just saying, well, sometimes I feel sad because that's a normal state of affairs for a human being. We said we would touch on this briefly, and this will only take, I think, a couple of minutes, because I just wanted to basically explain a concept that I imagine nearly everyone has heard about, but seems to be incredibly misused. The idea of the separation of church and state. Now, this is primarily relevant in America, actually, because America has a clear philosophical uh, wall there whereas when you look at like the irish constitution and stuff like that you find much more of talk of uh, involving religion than you do in like the american constitution which is i think everyone well not everyone but anyone interested in american politics will be familiar with the first part of the bill of rights michael yeah the, the state this the state shall not establish any religion this congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion that's only, weirdly enough, that's only the first part of the sentence. And what's the, what's the best bit? The next bit, rather. Or prohibit the free exercise thereof. Yes. Now, it's worth observing, if my memory serves me right, that that was, when that was in, put, that was in the Constitution, put in the Constitution, at the time, some states, I think Virginia, for example, had actually had the, in, uh, a, an established church, I think the Episcopal Church, was the established church of the state of Virginia. And at the time, that wasn't seen to be in conflict because it was Congress. That was a state, that was an issue which was reserved to the states and the states could individually do what they liked. And not and not for me to 
tell the Americans how to organize themselves. But there are, shall we say, some people in the United States who feel that the direction in which the understanding of the amendment has taken in the 20th century uh, regarding the separation of the church and state has been wrong-headed. Ultimately, the, I think the way that it's understood is that the state should be secular and shielded from religious influence. And and everything and anything to do with the state has to be absolutely rigorous. So, for example, you 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 can't have say a crib at Christmas. You would be the ACLU will complain if some like a fire station or a police station was to put up a crib. You might put yourself open to a complaint from the ACLU because that's a state, that's a government function, and you're actually putting a religious symbol up there, and you don't have any religious symbols anywhere near a state funded. Uh, building or institution. The the actual purpose of the separation of church and state is to protect the churches. It's to ensure that there is religious liberty. It doesn't mean if you are religious or if a church has views, it can't try and influence the government. It can't try and get something passed at all. Yeah, it was to make sure that the, you wouldn't have a situation where one religion was established as the, across the United States and favoured or privileged over another religion by the state. But it was absolutely not set, it was not foreseen or understood to be a way of controlling the, the activities of one or any church within the public space. The thing that's got people in America whipped up at the minute about this is the Nancy Pelosi thing, denying her the right of communion. That's a perfectly legitimate thing for a church to decide. And on the basis of preserving religious liberty, no space exists there for the state to intercede in it. And you've started to see a call from democratic activists. And given how religion is still portrayed in large parts of America, it's a very stupid call politically for uh, the Catholic Church to be taxed as a business in direct retaliation. Which seems to me to be an exact uh, kind of thing that the amendment was pres- was, was created to stop happening. This is the state saying, if you don't behave in a certain kind of way and you don't conform your religious beliefs to to ones that we find acceptable, we are going to punish you through the powers of the state. That's an absolutely clear example of the state using its power to coerce a church, which is what the whole point of the amendment was in the first place to avoid. It's what I mean, I occasionally see it come up when a politician will do something religious and people will demand that they stop because you know the church and the state should be separate that's not what it's ever meant i think the the easiest way to think about this is it's separation of church and state not of religion and state but no i just wanted to, to mention that as it is for some reason coming up again the democrats look like they're going to be if things continue as they are they will be eradicated in the midterms it'll be a bloodbath and then you have people coming out and being like, well, maybe we should just start taxing the churches. <laughs> and then in response to Roe, and, uh, Roe v. Wade and the potential that it goes, you have people putting forward bills that are just, they're so broad and would make abortion so widely available that now even their own people are going, that seems a bit extreme, doesn't it? Now let's have a debate about abortion up to birth on what should have been, Michael, pretty much a slam dunk for the Democrats. You would have, I mean, all of the polling has shown that outside of, shall we say, specific, very deep red pockets, the American voting population is not that hot on the idea, actually, of overturning Roe versus Wade. 
are of creating you know, sort of absolute interdictions against access to abortion. That seems to be where the majority of Americans are. So this should have been an opportunity for moderate Democrats to come out and say, listen, you know, go back to the old Bill Clinton. I think it was Bill Clinton, was it? Uh, what was it? Safe, re legal and rare. Go back to that kind of position and say, you know, we don't like what the, these radical Republicans are doing for abortion rights and women's health care and whatever, and then put up a moderate position. But instead, but this is what happens, isn't it, when political parties are captured, not by the voters, but by activists who are more radical than the, than the population. I mean, it would have been incredibly difficult for the Democrats to consider a more limited bill, considering the activists aligned with the Democrats. It would... And to be fair, if it was the other way around, the Republicans Absolute, would have yeah, found yeah. exactly the same problem. Sure. But actually, the point you made about the majority of, of uh, Americans don't want to see Roe v. Wade go is an interesting one for this reason. You're right that that's what they say. But also, the majority of Americans believe that abortion should be more restrictive than it currently is, something which would require the removal of Roe v. Wade. Well, certainly, as Roe v. Wade was decided originally, it essentially gave un unlimited, unrestricted access to abortion. Yeah, but let's face it, Gary, you know you know better than me that expecting consistency from people when you poll them on issues. No, I, I no, obviously yes. This is a path that's been well wedged, well worn, but it is a good thing to point out in relation to polling because you've got all the methodological issues. You've got the fact it can be manipulated. But then you have like the fundamental problem that in general, the public has no idea about any policy. Like they've no idea of the difficulties with it. And you can get massively different responses from the public purely by adding how much a policy will cost mm -hmm. to your questions. It's very easy. Not that any of the fine upstanding polling companies in Ireland would do such a thing, Michael. No, no, no. But foreigners, foreigners might, Gary, because you can't trust foreigners. Yeah, actually, the polling companies in Ireland, depending on who you're going with, are actually relatively careful on it. Some more than others. It's never made a whole lot of sense to me why a polling company wouldn't try and be careful as as it could be. Because you want, it would, I would have thought, on the on the face of it, that you want to be as accurate in your outcomes as you can be, because that's your business. Anyway, we will be back, I believe, next Sunday. I don't think that's a bank holiday either. <laughs> no, 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 I don't think so. Well, no, actually, it might be. It might be Whit. It might be Whit Weekend, I'm not sure. They're like Pokemon. There's just so many these days. So many, many of them. But if it's not, we'll be back. All the best. Bye-bye.